0: I do want us to think for just a little bit tonight as we think about the life of Samuel, how God often works imperceptibly. In other words, in ways we don't even see, ways that are underground, ways that seem small and insignificant and one day can actually impact the world, I mean, just turn the tide of a whole nation. We have, we have no idea as we seek to serve the Lord, even tonight, what God will do with that. We have no idea, for instance, what God will do with the Christian learning centers and the relationships that are going to be built there and the kids that are going to come to know Christ through that and what God will do with their life. We have no idea all the ways that God is going to use Ben and and Larissa. And later we're going to pray for the overstreets as well. We, we just don't know. But God is at work, and because God has everything at His disposal, God doesn't lose that any more than He lost the cicada nymphs down deep in the dirt. He's, he knows what's going on there. He designed it this way. He knows how the cycle is going to go. He knows how the cycle is going to go for us, too. And we have a purpose in our life, even from childhood. Now, Israel— has been living through the dark ages of their history. It's bleak. Once the generation that knew Joshua, the great leader, remember he had been a younger contemporary of Moses, once the generation that knew Joshua had died, the people forgot God and they pursued idols. They suffered the consequences of doing so with wave after wave of foreign nations oppressing them. They would cry out in their distress, and God would send a man, a judge, to deliver them. As the years wore on, and you read the book of Judges, the cycle gets worse and worse. It's not just always the same. In fact, we, we saw that as it got toward the end, the people didn't even cry out in their distress. They weren't even asking for deliverance. God would just send it. And we saw that, that even the heroes that God used would behave wickedly, and the nation seemed hopelessly mired in sin and bad decisions. As you get into, like, Judges 19 and 20 and 21, it's like, oh, I don't even want to read this stuff. It's so bad. Um, And it, it, it just looks terrible. It looks like there's no way out. But in the latter part of these years, we remember that the events of the book of Ruth took place. Ruth, from Ruth eventually would come King David. It's not till later that Israel will understand the huge significance of what was happening in that small family that that left Israel for a time, went to the land of Moab, and came back along with Ruth the Moabitess, who was faithful to her family and faithful to God. Even later comes the story of Hannah suffering the sorrows of barrenness and of polygamy, the other wife having children right and left and gloating over Hannah with wicked cruelty. In fact, while God allowed that polygamy there in the the Old Testament times, it never turned out well. It wasn't according to God's design. That's always the way that it is. But to barren Hannah is finally born a son in answer to her prayer. His name is Samuel, asked of the Lord. She dedicates him to the Lord as a young boy, and in what God will do through this child lies the hope of the entire nation. God is going to call him, and that's going to change everything. The call of God on a little boy serving in the tabernacle with an with a elderly priest who has wicked sons God is going to use this little boy and his life as a prophet in Israel and eventually as the one who anoints King David as king. His life and David's life are going to come together. And God is going to bring about what we might call the golden age of Israel's history right out of the dark ages. It just so happened that this is where we are in our People of the Promise series. And if I had to choose a subject, a passage to talk about for an ordination night, I felt like there, there couldn't be a better choice than this. In fact, this would go into the, you know, the go-to list of passages. Because as we look at the call of God in Samuel's life, we're going to see the kind of man that God does use to do extraordinary things. The first thing, when we're first introduced to Samuel, the first thing that we're told about him is that he's a man, a very young man, a child, a man of worship. Here's the first mention of him and how he behaved. In 1 Samuel 1, 26, she, that is Hannah, said, "'O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, "'I am the woman who is standing here in your presence "'praying to the Lord, for this child I prayed.'" And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he has lent to the Lord. And he, that is Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. Now, the term that's used for worshipping as the common one in the Hebrew language, it basically means to bow down. It conveys the idea that, that genuine worship is like when you fall prostrate before God and say, God, anything you want, I'll do it. God, I'm yours to use however you want. And the first picture that we see of Samuel is this kind of worship where, because of the worth of God, he's bowing before him, even as a child. And and interestingly enough, even before he knows the Lord, even before the Lord has revealed himself to him, he at least recognizes that the Lord Deserves worship. Where did he learn that? Why? How does a child worship God right from the beginning? Well, take a look at Hannah and take a look at Elkanah, uh, her husband, and look at how they made it a priority to go to the prescribed feast of the Lord. When when the nation was largely a nation that had turned away from the Lord, they're still coming to worship the Lord. Even the priests are wicked. Uh, Eli is, is righteous, but his sons are wicked. He's retired. Uh, He's not really doing his job. He should have removed them from office, but they're still coming to worship the Lord, and Samuel learns to worship the Lord from his parents. He is a man of worship, and really, ultimately, this is where it starts. If anybody's to be used of God, you've got to understand who God is and that He deserves your worship, that you ought to be bowing the knee before him. Like we see in Romans 1, I mentioned it this morning, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, uh, neither were they thankful, and so their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay? The first step to my actually being used of God and, and knowing God is actually saying, God, I, I know that you're there. Paul says that we're without excuse. We can tell from the things that he has made all around us that he's powerful. We know from our conscience that we will answer for right and wrong, that he is judge. And God starts to make himself known to Samuel here in the tabernacle. Second thing we see about him is that Samuel is a man of ministry, a man of ministry. In First Samuel 2.11, the little Cana went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So once he had been weaned, uh, he's just a, a toddler at this point. He starts serving the Lord, staying in the tabernacle with uh, old Eli, uh, the priest, and, and is ministering to the Lord there. And Eli becomes responsible, really, for training this boy in serving the Lord. And the word for ministry is just is similar to the New Testament word. It just means to serve. But, uh, to, and, and it's the idea of of guarding the, the tabernacle and, and taking your station and doing what God has called you to do. We see the same words in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Now, before it said it was in the presence of Eli, here it's actually before the face of the Lord. So he's, he's ministering to the Lord, but he's also ministering with, with the idea that the Lord is actually there, that he's in the presence of God, and he is serving him. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So we see Samuel uh, growing up, you know, he's got to have a new robe because he's becoming bigger and bigger, and he's still there ministering before the Lord. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, we're going to start seeing his call eventually. Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. By that point, um, the term that's used for boy uh, could re- apply to even a teenager, and he's probably a teenager by, by this point uh, when he's ministering to the Lord. And we'll see the reason that I'd say that later. Now, what's striking about chapter 2 is that, that you see Samuel ministering to the Lord, and, and it goes alternating between Samuel and between Hophni and Phine- Phinehas, um, Eli's wicked sons. And so you have this comparison contrast, in contrast to Eli's wicked sons who used their ministry positions for wicked, selfish purposes. People still do that today. Some of you have been harmed by it. These men, these men grew up in the household of the priests of the Lord, but they did not know the Lord according to uh, the scriptures, and they blasphemed him with their lifestyle. They stole parts of the offering that were supposed to only be from the Lord. They would prey on the women that that would come and and do things that were totally wrong and sinful and and dishonored the Lord. So, they used their office to actually uh, feather their own nest, to become wealthy, to become fat, uh, to take advantage of people, to sin against them. You know, we desire our children to grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's why we have things like Not Just for Kids. That's why we have family gatherings. That's why we have Christian schools. That's why we try to teach children from, uh, from the beginning. But you do realize that some of those that are brought up this way are already on their way to becoming like Hophni and Phineas, wicked blasphemers of the Lord. Because if their hearts are not open to what they're hearing and they're not submitting to the Lord they're learning about, they will become some of the most wicked people on the planet because their hearts are hard toward God. They're hardened to the truth of God, unmoved by the worship of God, hearts far from God, and their worship is in vain They're they're merely habits that they've learned from their family. It's very easy. And let me just talk to you who are younger here. It's very easy for you to think that you're okay with God just because you're doing the things that your parents are making you do right now. Just because you're here tonight. Just because you go to Sunday school. Just because you go to a Christian school doesn't make you a Christian. Doesn't mean that you're born again. Now, these things are good, but you do realize that when you're given good from God, and yet you resist God, that good actually hardens your heart, and and it makes you an extraordinary kind of rebel. There are children all over the world that would love to hear what you are learning right now, who, who would give their lives to hear it, who have never had this kind of opportunity, and yet... Yet some of you will throw it all out and say, no, I'm going to live for myself. So let me encourage you. And we learned this from Samuel right from the beginning. You know, even a child is known by his doings. I I don't care if you're five years old or or six or seven. You, You can be worshiping God from the heart. You can be serving him, recognizing how great he is. So let me ask you particularly some questions. Now, this applies to your parents and grandparents as well, because we can be just as bad, okay? But especially you kids, what are you doing with the truth that you are hearing? Some of you will be in children's church. You You don't pay one ounce of attention to what's being taught. You would rather just doodle. You don't hear a word. You don't pray. You're looking around. You you don't engage in worship at all. You're just there. You do realize that that response to the truth of God and to the worship of God, it is a blasphemous kind of response. It's a response of not treating God as God. Look, the gospel wasn't your parents' idea. The Bible wasn't your grandparents' special book. It's the word of God who made heaven and earth and who's made himself known to men. And and we actually, you know, even the demons tremble when they think about God. And we want to, even as children, pay attention. Do you do you love God? Do you love God? And so, say, well, how would I know that I love God? Well, do you like being around him? Do you like hearing what he has to say? Do you like talking to him? Do you pray? Do you actually talk to God? Or is God just a fiction that the Sunday school teacher talks about? Do you spend any time in your Bible just to know God? You know, one of the downsides of having the Bible up on the screen is that we tend to quit carrying it in our hands, and so we don't necessarily have it with us. Maybe we have it on our phones as we get older or whatever, but, but really important that, that even as a child, as you learn to read, one of the main reasons that, that early in our country's history, children are caught to read is so they could read the Bible, so they could read the actual words of God, now, I usually take a little survey with my uh, ninth graders, biblical worldview. And at the beginning of the year, one of the questions I ask is, is, How often do you read the Bible? And when you do, for how long? And there's a handful of kids that will say, I actually read it every day. Okay? The vast majority, I would say 75 to 80%, say, I read the Bible once a week for between 5 and 30 minutes. It ranges between 5 and 30 minutes a week. In other words, they read the Bible when they go to church. That's it. I'll guarantee you they don't know God well. So one of my goals for ninth graders is going to say, hey, if, if you're going to actually know God, you've got to be in His Word. Well, I don't like to read. Well, then listen to it at least. You can do that. Okay? Okay. But you've got to get in the Word. Are you, as a child, trying to serve God? Think about the ways you can serve God. You can serve God by obeying your mom or your dad. You can serve God by helping around the house. You can serve God by volunteering to help when you're in school or or at children's church or in Sunday school. There's all kinds of ways that you can serve God. You can serve God by having a good attitude when other people have a bad attitude. You can serve God by having a humble heart and being kind to people. In fact, actually most of the ways that adults can serve God, you can serve God. Adults sometimes think they're serving God just because they have a job, being a preacher. That, that doesn't necessarily mean you're serving God. Service to God still means loving God and loving others and doing it in practical ways throughout every day that you live. Okay? You can serve God. Or are you just watching your parents and your teachers and other people serve God? Okay, so kids... This is just for kids. No, it's not just for kids, but this is just for kids. Serve God now. Don't get in the habit of not serving him. Don't get in the habit of closing your ears to his truth. Don't get in the habit of keeping your mouth shut instead of praying to him. Don't get in the habit of ignoring who God is. It's a bad habit. It will take you to places you never want to go. Instead, like Samuel, become a child who ministers before the Lord. Dale Ralph Davis, in his little uh, commentary on 1 Samuel, says it must have seemed to many that there was no hope of improvement, no exit from the night, talking about how awful the priests that were serving in the temple were, the grown children of Eli. But in the middle of it all, the text keeps whispering, don't forget Samuel. You see how Samuel is serving. That is Yahweh's manner, quietly providing for the next moment, even in the middle of the darkest moments. Number three, Samuel was a man of growth, a man of growth. 1 Samuel 2, 21, indeed the Lord visited Hannah. That means He knew exactly what was going on in Hannah's life, and He took action on her behalf. And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. She gave away her first son to the Lord, and then He gave her all these others. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence, or before the face, of the Lord. And then in verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature, so that would be his height and strength, and in favor with the Lord and also with man. It refers to to goodness or well-being or being pleasing in relation to uh, the Lord and in relationship to other people. So, Samuel was growing in his interaction with God and his interaction with other people. And it was good. It was a good interaction. He was making the connections. And what was striking to me about this verse is how similar it is to the description of Jesus. In Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. there, There are some ways that Samuel looks a lot like Jesus as he's growing up. You know, Jesus is 12 years old when he's, when he's serving the Lord, answering questions and stuff in the temple. And he submitted to it, to his mom and his dad. And, and uh, you know, we only had that one little glimpse of him just because, before he becomes a teenager. J- Jesus was serving the Lord before he ever entered public ministry. He was serving the Lord in his family. He was serving the Lord in, in worship uh, there in the temple. Uh, Jesus was growing in his understanding and his strength and in his relationships with people. This is a growing time. And all of us, you know, hopefully none of us quit growing. But really important that we are growing, that we're not just settling, that we're not being lazy, that we're not uninterested in learning anything or becoming any better. We we want to keep growing. And Samuel was that kind of man. The problem with growth or maybe not the problem, the reality about it, is it takes time. You know, 15, 10, 15 years for those those nymphs to become cicadas, well, it, it takes quite a while for us to grow up and become what God is making us. During those years, the fate of the nation looked bleak, and those who were supposed to be leading in righteousness were leading in wickedness. Instead, wickedness of the worst kind. Davis again says this, Yahweh is already at work providing for a new godly leadership for His people. There are no slogans, no campaigns, no speeches. It is all very quiet. Growth seldom makes noise, and Yahweh is growing His new leader. Do you realize most of how you change, how God will make you effective, for the coming days and months and years happens at times and places that most people won't even observe. God tends to use ordinary means, to use humble means, to use quiet places, not big, splashy things. In fact, the splashier it is, the more celebrity type it is, probably the less real it is. And so let me encourage you that in the quiet times, in the, in the childhood years and teenage years and, and retirement years, in those times that are away from public eye to make sure that you are a person that's growing in your relationship to God, your relationship to other people, and your service of Him. And then he was a man of submission. And we saw this this morning in, in John 7, in the search for truth, that the revelation of truth comes to those who want to do the will of God. If I'm not willing, if I'm not willing to do whatever God shows me, then why should he show me anything, okay? And we see this in Samuel's life. In 1 Samuel 3 and verse 4, and this is where the call of God starts to show up. Then the Lord called Samuel, this is in the middle of the night, and he said, here I am. Well, of course, he thought it was Eli calling him, so he runs into Eli's room and says, you called me, what do you want? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Why did you, know, you wake me up? Uh, and he says, okay, go back to this. And then, and then God calls again. He says, here I am. And he goes and he says, you did call me. And of course, that goes back and forth. Um, but one of the things that we notice as we look through this chapter is over and over again, in Samuel's mouth, the thing that we see him say, and in fact, I'm thinking here, I think this is the first thing we ever hear him say here I am. Here I am. The first thing we hear him say is in response to somebody calling his name, he says, here I am. Not, don't bother me, I'm sleeping. Here I am, middle of the night. And so, finally, Eli figured it out, and in verses 9 and 10, we read, therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, speak, Yahweh, for your servant Hears, so Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, "Speak, for your servant hears." When he says hears, it's not just, "Oh, I heard you, I heard you. My ears are working. I got the wax out of me." It's not just that. It's it's that I am I'm listening. I'm listening because I want to obey whatever you tell me to do. In fact, it's interesting that the word for hear in the Old Testament can be translated obey, it can be translated listen. It's the idea of hearing in order to obey. You know, we use that. We say, now listen to me. Why do we say that? Because we want want people to listen so that they do what you're telling them to do. You say to your kids, listen, hear me now, hear me now. Why do we say that? Well, you're about to give them instruction as to what to do, okay? And that's exactly what God was doing with Samuel. And we see this submission, just this this attitude of submission. Like, are you known as a person that always gets your back up whenever anybody asks you to do anything? Or or is your, your normal kind of default setting inclined to say, yes, I'll help any way I can? You can't always do it, but, you know, as I'm talking about older adults or whatever, but, you know, even, even from childhood, we can be people that say, hey, if you ask me something, I'm, I'm glad to help, glad to help. You said, okay, mom, I'll do it. I sure don't want to, but I'll do it. Well, that's, that's almost as bad as disobeying, right? Um, we want to obey with a here-I-am kind of attitude that we see with Samuel. And then finally, what's going to become most significant in Samuel's life, and, and the change he's going to bring upon the nation of Israel is that he is a man of God's Word. And if I would have anything to say, you know, we've seen these kinds of characteristics in, in Ben and others of you that are, are called to ministry. You know, you've got to be men of worship and of service, of ministry, and we, we want to see growth, and we want to see submission, not a not an attitude of pride that's unwilling to be helpful, but ultimately the way you're going to serve the body is being a man of God's Word. And we read in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 3, Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So, well, why, you know, why wasn't God speaking? Why, why was it so rare? This famine of God's word had resulted from the judgment of God on a people who had been given the word of God, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy had all five of those. They had them, and they actually had more than that because there would be the book of, of, of Joshua as well, and, and Joshua had taught from what Moses had taught, this book of the law will not depart out of your mouth. They ignored it, though. Generation after generation, they turned their back on what God had already revealed, and every man, and this was the cadence that we see in the book of Judges, did what was right in his own eyes. They just did what they wanted to do. They just did what they thought was right to do with no submission to what the word of God was. You do realize that, God doesn't owe us revelation. You do realize that right now we live in a community at a time when the word of God is very much available to us. We've enjoyed it for a long time. It it does not always have to be this way, and it likely will not always be this way. You can look at places on earth that are among the unreached people groups of the world. For instance, the land of Turkey, that's where all the seven churches were that are addressed at the beginning of the book of Revelation. There's no guarantee that we will always have such access to the word of God. So when we have it, we want to treasure it. Bill Ralph Davis says it this way, starvation may not come from the absence of food, but from the lack of appetite. So, the question is, you have the Word of God, what are you doing with it? Well, there is a famine for the Word of God, and we're told in verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the Word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. But in verse 11, God brings the Word to him, On that night, where uh, Eli had instructed him to say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears, this is what the Lord said to Samuel. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house. There had been a prophet earlier that talked about this from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Wow. How'd you like to preach that on Sunday morning? Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. Okay, that's the way he responds. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. See, Eli had complained to his sons about their bad and wicked behavior, but as the judge and as the priest, he had the power and should have had them removed. He he had the right to do that. And for whatever reason he chose not to. He was judge and priest of the nation, and he did not remove them from office to keep them from doing the wickedness that they did. So what Samuel first heard from the Lord was very difficult to receive and even more difficult to pass on, but he did it anyway. Samuel revered and loved Eli. Eli had reared him like a son. So it was a test of Samuel's integrity as a prophet of the Lord whether he would faithfully deliver to Eli the word of that God revealed. You know, everybody, I think, loves to teach things that they know people are going to be happy to hear. But the test comes when you have to teach and preach things from the word of God that you know are not going to be received well. And you have to decide, as a minister of the gospel, where your chief loyalty is actually is. Whether or not you're going to be a man of the Word or just a man of the people. In 1 Samuel 3, 19 to 21, we read, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. That reminds us of description, say, of Joseph in, in Egypt. The Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, he fulfilled everything that he revealed to him, And all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, one who hears from the Lord and then speaks to others. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 3 begins with telling us that the word of the Lord was rare, and chapter 3 ends with, The Word of the Lord is being revealed through Samuel. He was a man of the Word, a man of worship, a man of ministry, a man of growth, a man of submission, a man of God's Word. This is the kind of people we need to be. This is the kind of people we need to be even as children, and as we grow, God uses his word through us to others to actually change the course of nations. And that's my prayer for us in our community, in our state, in our nation, in our world, that God will use us to bring the word of God to people and change actually the very course of history by the power of.